Ben Horowitz started LoudCloud with Mark Andreessen in 1999. He ran the company for eight years and chronicled his experience in his first book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. In his time running LoudCloud, the dot-com bubble burst, but LoudCloud needed cash so badly that he took the company public in 2001. LoudCloud went through layoffs, downsizing, and a difficult strategic maneuver in which LoudCloud sold its cloud provider business for cash and then used the core competency that it had developed to create new software for building and running cloud services. This new software was the core product of the company Opsware, which was sold to HP in 2007 for $1.6 billion. The LoudCloud story looks like a rational, straightforward execution in retrospect, but at many points in the timeline, Ben was unsure he was making the correct decision. As the subtitle of his first book states, there are no easy answers. The Hard Thing About Hard Things tells the story of LoudCloud and Opsware in harrowing detail. Most founders of software companies will end up reading the book at some point when they're building their company because there are so few books which capture the granular details of what it feels like to run a company. A CEO is completely alone in their understanding of the company. Nobody else has nearly as much information as the CEO. Not the board, not the market, and not the employees. When you are a CEO, there is simply nobody to turn to who can give you the actionable advice that you wish you could have access to. And because there is nobody else, it means that the CEO's own psychological state is extremely important. The hard thing about hard things provides a CEO with solace. While the CEO is alone within their company, they are not alone in the world. Every CEO has a set of issues which they have never faced before, and the CEO can learn to face those issues confidently and competently. Like any influential book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things presents the reader with useful answers, but also raises many questions. How can a normal person foster the mentality of a leader? How can a leader convince smart people to follow their direction? How can a seemingly crazy direction be framed as completely rational? The second book by Ben Horowitz is called What You Do Is Who You Are. This book surveys a set of case studies in leadership, including a Haitian slave revolt, the Mongol Empire, and a dominant prison gang. By studying violent environments, Ben frames leadership in the context of the highest stakes. These stories are about life and death. When a leader's performance is measured in blood, it frames the true nature of leadership in the starkest resolution. Ben uses each distilled example as a base case which inducts into broader applications. The cultures of Netflix, Facebook, Uber, and McDonald's are explored alongside editorials about Hillary Clinton and hip-hop culture. Throughout all of these stories, the most important thread is continually reinforced. The leader creates the culture. The culture is the leader. What you do is who you are. Ben joins the show to discuss his writing and how he has applied his beliefs to building Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm that he co-founded and leads today. 
Ben Horowitz. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Exciting to be here. Andy Grove wrote about inflection points in mm-hmm. technology. Yeah, only and the paranoid survive. That's right. And inflection points also exist in warfare. Describe how a leader should correctly evaluate an inflection point. Well, you know, Andy, the way Andy always said it was there's got to be a 10x change in something. And in business, that was a 10x change in competition, a 10x change in the market, a 10x change in the supply chain, that kind of thing. And then if that happened, then like that required a strategy change. And I think, you know, war is a kind of similar kind of thing. And you can imagine that happening with competition or supply chain in war as well, or, you know, any kind of escalation like that. So that's, you know, I think that's probably the most correct definition. It's used like super loosely now. It's like uh, everybody's always at an inflection point when they come see us, for example. I don't think that's really going on. Andy Grove's model of the breakfast factory. We know that it maps to building technology companies. Does it also map to building a military force? Uh, well, you know, like I think there's some analog there. You know, I, I, I probably, my, my business knowledge is much better than my military knowledge. So I think, you know, that example in particular was very manufacturing order oriented, of course, and had like to do with process management measurement. And really, I think the the big insights out of the breakfast factory were that, you know, a lot of people have metrics for, okay, I want to achieve this or I want to achieve that. But what you really have to think about it is, okay, if you want to achieve this, then what is that going to cost you? Like what's, and he called that the paired indicator. So like, great that you want your software to ship on time, but like what else? What better you be worried about, like a quality or like how many features you have or that kind of thing, if you're going to focus on that metric. And then also he did a very nice job of distinguishing leading and lagging indicators and how that works. So I imagine in a military context to the point that you were trying to understand the output of any operation, I think that military operations tend to be a little more kind of one time in nature, whereas like what he was talking about, the breakfast factory was a repetitive process that you refine. So it depends, I I guess, on how you're going to apply it. Mike Ovitz is another of your influences. What do you disagree with Mike Ovitz about? (laughs) Uh, Well, he's also a friend of mine, so I don't want to get too much on that. Look, I, I mean, I think the way he ran CAA was different than, you know, for example, how we run a venture capital firm. For example, and one of the things I talk about in the book is he had a very kind of specific idea about how people should dress at CAA. And I don't know that I disagree with him on I think we haven't implemented that here just because I think it won't work as well given our strategy. But at CAA, like their strategy was we're going to come off as the most professional talent agency. And while everybody else is wearing, you know, tie-dye shirts and this and that, we're going to wear like dark suits, like ties and white shirts and that kind of thing. And uh, very effective for him and not so effective for us, but like different contexts. You know, he was in, um, you know, he's in the talent agency context and we're in the venture capital context, uh, but a lot of other things did translate. CAA was able to package actors and directors and 
command higher pricing for their production. Yeah, way higher pricing, yeah. Within A16Z, have you figured out any analogous strategies for dictating <laughs> deal terms or some kind of differentiated advantage like that? I don't think there's a great analog for us in venture capital for that. So, you know, what Michael did there was in those days, the studios had all the leverage because if you wanted to be in the movie, you had to sign whatever contract they had. And that's kind of how Hollywood worked. And the top actors in those days kind of got paid the equivalent of like $500,000 of film. And I think now it's over $20 million of film. And that change, um, and, and now I'm talking in like real dollars, you know, inflation adjusted. The change in salary, the like 40x increase was due to Michael Ovitz's packaging. And what it did was it changed basically the power structure from the studio to the actors because all of a sudden you couldn't make a movie without the actors because he would have them all. <laughs> um, and you needed like 90% share to do that. Um, so I don't think, you know, like we're as uh, well as we're doing, we're definitely not at 90% share. And, and venture capital is harder to kind of get to that kind of market share because it's an open system, not a closed system. What have you learned about managing your own psychological state that you did not learn at LoudCloud? Look, I, I think that these days, I don't know, I have an easier easier job than I had at LoudCloud. You know, when your company's melting down, it's like much harder on your psychology than it is uh, when everything's going well. So I don't know that I'm tested as much. But I think, look, I, you know, I think the big thing is, you know, experience helps you a lot in managing your psychology, particularly if you've been through things that are worse than what you're going through. You kind of know, like, where your limits as, uh, as a person are. What do you do when a portfolio company CEO is suffering from mental health issues? <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know that we've had one that has had like a real mental health issue when you talk about something like uh, bipolar or schizophrenia or, you know, some of the real things that people deal with. But if they were to have a mental health issue, like I think that one of the big mistakes we've made as a society is even calling it mental health. It's health. And if somebody has a health issue, the thing to do, any kind of health issue, is like that's the priority. And if we need to make a change, backfill them, make a temporary fix, whatever we have to do, that's what we have to do. Uh, and I think that goes for sure for mental health as well. Some people are successful despite very idiosyncratic habits. The first protagonist of your book, Toussaint, quote, slept two hours a night and could live for days on a few bananas and a glass of water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a kind of, you know, and you wonder, you know, with these war stories, like, you know, how much is stretched just because it is a war story. But yeah, that was the legend of him. He was, and then the, even his enemies would report, like, this guy is literally everywhere. Like, we, we can't even believe, like, he's everywhere. He knows every single person on the colony. He's everywhere all the time. Like, we just can't deal with him. So let's say somebody. Yeah, so he certainly had, like, that level of energy where that would make sense, where he would sleep two hours a night and, and eat a couple of bananas. And if a founder told you. And he you, was very, actually, interestingly, he was really, really paranoid of being poisoned. And there was a lot of, like, poisonings. His predecessor in the, uh, one of his predecessors who had attempted and failed 
to lead a slave revolt in Haiti was a guy by the name of Mackendall, and he was actually poisoned. <laughs> so that's part of the reason he only ate two bananas, because like when it was a banana, you peeled it, you knew it wasn't poison. And then the other was like, you didn't want to eat anything else. Would you trust a founder who came into your office and said, look, I've got this amazing idea, I've got this amazing software. By the way, I only eat bananas and sleep two hours a night. We've had founders with like not quite that, but similar things where they would, you know, like literally stay awake for four or five days straight and then sleep for three days. <laughs> so like we, we have run into that for sure. And it's a definitely a special kind of personality, but they, they exist out there. Toussaint was imprisoned by Napoleon and then he died. Napoleon later expressed regret that he imprisoned Toussaint he should have ruled Haiti through Toussaint, so he said. And here we see the dire consequence of Napoleon essentially making a decision out of emotion or out of envy. This decision was clearly good for nobody. This was a lose-lose. Oh, yeah. Well, the replacement was Dessalines, uh, who, of course, within I think, three days of taking over, killed all the white people in Haiti, or at least all the French people in Haiti. So... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was probably a mistake for him. But, but focusing on the, the emotional aspect or, or whatever was driving Napoleon to make that decision, we see these kinds of decisions all the time in the software industry. Why is it that with all of our technical advancements, we still make these short-sighted negative sum decisions? Well, look, I think that it's a careful balance because you know, as we're learning now, like your gut is very connected to your brain. And a lot of times what you feel is a kind of the sum total of all your knowledge. It kind of translates literally into an emotion. And so often that emotion is right. But yeah, yeah, sometimes, particularly when you get into things like revenge <laughs> or jealousy or like you know, any of the seven deadly sins, then you get into a situation where you would be better off using logic and forgetting your, you know, what, what your gut is telling you, so to speak. Is it harder to manage your own psychology as a CEO or as a successful mainstream hip hop artist? <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, speaking of mental health issues, I think it's actually quite a bit more prevalent in hip hop artists probably than in CEOs. So <laughs> in that sense, like it's probably harder as a hip hop artist, not being a mainstream hip hop artist. It's tricky, but like, you know, one of the things that writing this book kind of brought me to a little bit, which I found interesting is if you have like the first thing that you put out is a success, like the last book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, then the next one is kind of scary because it's like, if I just left that book out there, then my reputation is fine. It's great. It's, you know, whatever. If I put out the next one, and the analogy I always used to uh, like is Terrence Trent Darby's second album. I think it's called Neither Fish Nor Flesh or some crazy name like that, but it was horrible. You know, like we, everybody listened to Wishing Well, and they were like, wow, this guy's going to be the next prince. And then the next thing, it's like, he's gone. So he, if he never put out another album, he would have been better off. So like, I felt like that, and that's a bit of a psychological trick because if you get too much into outdoing yourself, then you're going to, you know, that's not the thing you want to think about if you're writing a book or, you know, making an album. You want to think about like, what is, like, how can I translate like this truth best? Not 
like how do I top my last one? That that that's a very dangerous idea. If you were Biggie or Tupac in the mid '90s, how would you have avoided that confrontation becoming fatal? <laughs> I'd not ever hire Suge Knight. Fair enough. What are the lessons of leadership that we can learn from RZA? Well, so the thing that RZA. I would say that was most like amazing to me and I, I still don't quite understand how he did it is, you know, he had nine guys in the rap group, which is basically six more than anybody else ever successfully did. And he was able to kind of, he kind of created a new, like you couldn't run it like as a typical group where like, okay, we have the group. And even when he was, they were getting signed, people were like, you guys, there's just not going to be enough money to go around with 90 years in there. But what he did was he kind of created this open structure where they could make their own albums. He would still produce them. So like that that organizational construct of the Wu-Tang Clan with nine people could work. And I think that that, you know, reminds me a little of open source and it reminds me a little of what's going on in crypto. But it was like a very advanced organizational idea, which I, I don't know that I quite understand exactly how to interpret it yet. But very interesting, you know, super talented musically, obviously, but also a very kind of smart organizational thinker. DJ Premier was perhaps the best producer in the early 90s, mm -hmm. and he actually studied computers. Well, uh, Dr. <laughs> Dre. <laughs> Dr. Dre. <laughs> All right, sure. I mean, very different types of producers. Uh, yeah, but I don't think you put him above Dr. Dre. All right, fair enough. But he studied computer science before he became a producer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, like, you know, a lot of the guys, a lot of the producers are very much like engineers. So, like, Grandmaster Flash also was like, like, if you watch, they, they had a great segment on him in uh, Hip Hop Evolution. And, like, you listen to him talk, and he sounds like any engineer talking about his childhood. Like, you know, he was fascinated with how everything worked, took everything apart, you know, like all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, that, that definitely, there's a link for sure. And much like in the software industry, in hip hop, there are these technological inflection points, like the mm -hmm. MPC, for oh, example. Yeah, 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 no, definitely. <laughs> Lots of them. Well, music in general, you know, there was like the kind of advent of like singers and pop music came with the phonograph, which, you know, didn't exist in the same way before. You had like folk music and classical music, but you didn't have this kind of pop music idea. And then, <laughs> very interestingly, uh, the original LPs, the technology was such that if you made the grooves too narrow, the record would skip. So songs were kind of limited at three minutes or less. So all those James Brown songs that are like two minutes, two and a half minutes, that was like a technological thing that caused that style. There are entrepreneurs who seem to be completely comfortable in any domain, like Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. For yeah. example, there are also artists who seem to have this kind of ability for sure. constant reinvent, like Kanye, for example. Kanye, Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones. Ray Charles, yeah. What are the defining traits that are common between the most flexible artists and entrepreneurs? Yeah, well, I think it's kind of a little bit the highest level because you're not any, you know, you're not speaking the language of jazz or speaking the language of uh hip-hop you're speaking the language of music and similarly i think you're not in the discipline of computer science or rocket science or or what have you you're just in the area of like 
engineering and invention. And so it's a higher level, broader concept. And most people can't get to mastery at that level, but a few very special entrepreneurs can and musicians can. So I I think that is very much the same. Like you you won't see people doing what Elon, like most people would kill their companies if they tried to do what Elon Musk did, but like, you know, he can do it. And, you know, most people can't work with Count Basie, then write, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to, then work with Michael Jackson, then write Sanford and Son. Like, like, yeah, that's a, that's a special guy. The Berkeley Amp Lab was one of the most influential sources of technology in the last decade. What can we learn from the culture of the Amp Lab? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think like you have to give a lot of credit to Jan Stoika and Mike Franklin and all those guys, you know, who are involved in it. I don't know that I know the answer to that. I do think that the one thing that they did was they kind of they didn't cross the line all the way over into business, but they kind of took themselves out of academia and said, "We're really going to build open source projects that like go." Like, not, we're not going to do the academic, oh, I proved this out and I'm going to write a paper. That wasn't what they were going for. What they were going for was like, we're going to write software, it's going to work, it's going to scale, and people are going to deploy it. So if you look at Spark <laughs> versus what normally comes out of academia, like Spark was a way more finished project. And, and I think that, you know, just that attitude really differentiated them. What can startups learn from the dynamics of prison culture? Yeah, well, good question. And let me, I'll give you a couple. I'll give you, let me start with this one. So when Shaka Senghor first entered prison, he went to prison for a murder he did commit, and he gets to prison, and they put him in the quarantine area, and then he comes out of quarantine with like whatever, five or six guys who also came out of quarantine. And first day in the recreational area, kind of like first day in prison, one of the prisoners walked up to another prisoner and stabbed him in the neck, pulled the shank out. The prisoner bled to death and died. And the other guy threw the shank in the garbage and walked to the cafeteria and had a sandwich. I'm talking to Shock about that. And he said, look, when I saw that, I had to ask myself, could I do that? And I said, well, you were in for murder. Like, of course you could do that. You already did that. He said, no, I didn't do that. What I did was like, I'm in a drug deal. Guy jumps out of the car. He's rushing at me. I have a gun in my pocket. I react. I shoot him. That's very different than spending like a week filing a two liter bottle into a weapon and then deciding whether you're going to stab somebody in the stomach or stab him in the neck, whether you're going to wound him or you're going to kill him and then kill him and keep it moving to the cafeteria and have a sandwich. I couldn't do that. And he said, but I had to ask myself, could I do that? Because clearly that's what you needed to be able to do to survive in this place. So if you think about that, you go, well, clearly it's experiences like that new prisoner orientation that make prison so violent. That sets the culture. As soon as somebody asks, what do I need to do to succeed? And that's the answer. Then you've set the culture in a very violent way. Every company in the world, when a new employee walks in in their first day, week on the job, they're going to look and see who's successful in that company. And however that person's behaving, that's how they're going to behave. And that's your actual culture. 
your culture is and the values you have on the wall and your all hands meeting and what you say are you at your values and the performance review, like none of that is anything. That's just whatever you wanted it to be, but that's not what it is. What it is, is what do I need to be successful here? Because that's what I'm going to do. And what you do is who you are. At LoudCloud, Mark Cranny changed your culture in a way that you would not have expected. It was a cultural change that you actually needed. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were in a spot where you absolutely needed a culture change. At A16Z, do you look for people like that despite the fact that you're doing well? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're doing well, but like we do different things and we need to get better at things and so forth. So for example, when we went to do the bio fund, we knew we didn't we didn't have anything about that culture, even from a venture capital standpoint, and that the entrepreneurs in bio are scientists, and they're a lot of times doing science um, as opposed to engineering. And we didn't have a science culture. We had an engineering culture. So, uh, you know, we um, brought in a scientist, Vijay Pandey, to help us kind of get to that. But yeah, absolutely. As the business evolves, you end up needing new elements. And it's very hard to like create a new complex cultural element without incorporating outside leadership. And, you know, one of the great learnings I had from Toussaint, because it's like, well, how do you go from a slave army to a great military force? And something nobody had really ever done before. And one of the great tricks he pulled off, which I'm sure nobody had ever tried before, was he incorporated the enemy into his army. He incorporated French and Spanish and uh, British soldiers as his lieutenants alongside, you know, guys who had been slaves and enslaved by those same people. And, but that got him that European military culture, those elements that he really needed. And he ended up doing that better than they did even, you know, because he, he picked the parts of that culture that were really powerful and he kept, and he ran them very tightly. Netflix sees itself as a pro sports team, not a family. Is this a universally good cultural idea or should some companies cultivate a sense of family? (laughs) So I give you a quote from my old boss, Jim Barksdale. He used to say, look, this is not a family because I am not your daddy. And what he meant by that is your daddy's not going to fire you, but I am. So like, I think the family metaphor is a little tough in business because you have to be willing to fire people and That's a very dysfunctional family if you start firing your family members. So I I do think the sports team is a better analogy. When you were building LoudCloud, none of the management books you read were useful. What about books on psychology? Yeah, I mean, I I do think, well, you know, it's interesting because the organizational psychology books, which I looked at a lot for this book because they are more about culture, I think are... I, like, I think they're useful. I, I think they're, you know, they tend to be a little academic, you know, as opposed to practical. And so they have limitations. I mean, I think like not, not all management book, like High Output Management is a great book, obviously. Only the Paranoid Survives is a great book. Um, so there are some good management books. I think a lot of management books, though, you know, as I said, <laughs> focus on the easy things and they make things into three-step methods that aren't three-step methods methods and that kind of thing. And that's not useful. But uh, yeah, I mean, like I, 
a lot of psychology I, I found useful. I mean, in fact, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman was like very, very influential in a lot of my thinking about how inclusion actually works goes. So, so for sure, yeah. Is The Lean Startup a book about strategy or a book about tactics? It's a book about tactics, but impact strategy. So the way I would think about The Lean Startup is a startup's kind of core issue is finding product market fit. And that's a very, very difficult, complex task that requires, you know, incredibly precise communication among the people you're working with. And you generally don't have a lot of leadership in any company that can get you to that. Even if you're like a 10,000 person company, you probably have only a handful of people who can get you product market fit in any new product. So if you expand your startup, like say, you know, by putting in a lot of money, let's say whoever, some big giant fund gives you a huge check, uh, you know, to build we everything or whatever. Like once you get to that, uh, the danger of it is for any entrepreneur, it's pretty hard to distinguish your best two ideas from your ninth and 10th best ideas. And so if you have enough money, you try all 10. But the problem is you might have enough money but you don't have enough leadership and you don't have the communication to find product market fit on 10. No way. And so what typically happens is if you do 10, none of them are good as opposed to one of them being good. Whereas if you do one, that one will be good. It might be the wrong idea, but at least you can get it home. So in a sense, it's a book of tactics that helps you get to a better strategy is the way I would might phrase it. Is there anything about the book zero to one that when you read it struck you as particularly notable or insightful or particularly inflective for you things that were new yeah well you know because i know peter and i had also like read his class notes it's a little but like yes those ideas when i first heard them from him many of them were really interesting like i think the uh monopoly versus commodity paradigm is a really great lens through to which to think about how valuable a business is going to be. Now, like he's kind of stated it in the starkest terms imaginable, but the thing I really liked about it is it's confusing because, right, whatever, and it was Eric Schmidt at the time, but Larry Page or Sundar would say like, oh, no, we don't have a monopoly. Like there's all this competition for search, but of course they do have monopoly. Um, (laughs) By the same token, um, somebody who owns an Indian restaurant is going to say, oh, no, we're very differentiated. (laughs) You know, like we've got like these red tablecloths. Everybody else has, you know, white tablecloths and all that kind of thing. So it's actually the opposite of how it sounds. The more somebody tries to tell you how different they are, the, you know, kind of less likely they are to be a monopoly. And so that very kind of valuable insight. Quote from your book. The extent of one's courage or cowardice cannot be measured in ordinary times. All is revealed when something happens. We have been living through a 10-year bull market, and many of the founders that you probably encounter have never experienced a significant downturn. How do you test that such a founder will be durable to adversity? Oh, you don't know. And the only thing it tests... The founder is a test. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I think the only way to test somebody is to test them. And some people who come across as like you might think they're soft or whatever um, can pass the test. And people who come off as like super strong and tough-minded can't. And and that goes even on little things, you know, like firing an employee. Like the people who are good at it are often not the people you expect. Oprah is successful as an interviewer because she's able to navigate to the most difficult parts of a person's background. Do you ever try to do something like that when you're evaluating a founder for investment? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that we do is we don't let them start with their narrative. We always start them on our narrative, (laughs) which is kind of like, who are you? And... The reason for that is we can ask some questions. Like it's much more difficult to anticipate questions about who you are um, than like your business, like because you prepare to answer those questions all the time. And so we find that to be very instructive in terms of just understanding like, okay, what motivated this person? What did they run into in their life? Like how they overcome it? Did they overcome it? How do they interpret it? Very kind of revealing as to kind of how they'll deal with it the next time. What is something subtle that you measure at A16Z? Subtle. (laughs) It's a good question. I mean, we try to, you know, like one of the subtle things, I mean, I don't know how subtle they are, but we, you know, we do a lot of measuring of how like of network engagement, like how engaged our own network is. And then, uh, we care about that, of course, a lot with the entrepreneurs and so forth in terms of their products and like their subtle tease to how customers engage with the product that are very, very important. Like, you know, at a kind of course level, like it's like, oh, yeah, or we have an engagement level of this. And it's like, well, what are they doing? <laughs> and like, you know, it could be anything. Oh, they're logging in. Are they using it or are they just logging in? You know, are they, are you spamming them and then they, that causes them to log in and they stay there and all, you know, so like it gets subtle in the measurement of that, I think. Venture firms often have a practice where the partner writes a deal memo to justify an investment or just to propagate information internally. Does the media branch of A16Z serve a similar purpose where it has internal value as well as the external value? It does for me, you know, <laughs> like I uh, read and listen to all the stuff that we put out and it's, you know, it's just a good way to understand our own thinking, which, you know, a lot of it is original. And I'm sure that's true for other employees as well. I mean, I don't know who all reads what on our site, but I imagine um, most employees read a lot of it. You profile Don Thompson in your book. He's a McDonald's CEO, and he was one of the best engineers that worked at McDonald's before he became CEO. But it was not actually the engineering work that led to him becoming CEO. It was his interactions with regional managers and understanding what went on on the ground. And I think this bears, there's some resemblance between McDonald's franchising and modern marketplace companies where you have Uber or Airbnb or Thumbtack and these companies where there's all these constituencies within it. The idea of these labor platforms is kind of a labor platforms as a technology business is like a new thing. 
Give me the biggest lessons you've learned about how to build a sustainable labor marketplace. Yeah, well, I think that one of the keys, and this is one thing that McDonald's was brilliant at, it's a labor market, but nobody wants to be thought of as labor. You know, people want that dignity that, and they want to be invested in, and that can be, you know, whether you're driving for Lyft or Uber, or whether you're kind of doing uh, experiences on Airbnb or, or whatever it is you're doing, you know, it's very different to say, okay, you do a job and we're going to give you some money than like what McDonald's does, which is like, we're going to come in, bring you in, and we're going to train you to work, like not just work at McDonald's, but to work period, like how you show up on time, how you kind of, you know, <laughs> wear clean clothes to work, all that, you know, like they really invest in, you know, and their employees are kids. I think one of the stupid things about some of the kind of antagonism that they get, it's like, well, you can't support a family of eight on like McDonald's, right? It's like, well, like most of their employees are like 16 to 21. You know, these are not those kinds of jobs, but they do invest in those people. And that, and I think Don told me, and I might get this number wrong, but 60% 60% of McDonald's franchisees, I mean people who own McDonald's restaurants, started out as hourly employees. And so like that's how effective that training is in building kind of not only loyalty but success over time. I think those lessons need to be, you know, in, in some cases learned again and in some cases are being relearned, but uh, it's very, very powerful. In the 90s, Apple was widely criticized for a vertical strategy. And people wondered why Apple was not going horizontal. And it took years for the vertical strategy to come to fruition. Tell me a technology company that is as misunderstood today as Apple was in the 90s. (laughs) That's pretty hard because everybody got that one wrong. Well, okay, so I'm going to, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I think that we work is getting misinterpreted and i don't i'm not saying that they're necessarily going to make a comeback but i think that the way we work is written now is it's just like a straight up scam but like there were some things that they did exceptionally well and the, you know they were they they had, they had a very big vision about how they were going to change the world and all that and they attracted like tremendous talent and capital so you have to give them some credit for that but they also did something that is very rare in the industry they're in, which is they created a consumer brand for a commercial real estate company, which like name another one. And, you know, that's a real accomplishment. So I think that, you know, sometimes people like when things go wrong, they look past everything. <laughs> and in their case, they they certainly have. Now, they do have a lot of real issues. So I don't, I, you know, and then they no longer have the founder, which I think could probably be the fatal blow. The two most thriving open source distributed systems ecosystems are Kubernetes and Bitcoin, arguably. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting two to pick. Yeah. But what there's, what's strange about them, I mean, you could, Spark is another one, I guess you could say, but there's almost no cross-pollination between Bitcoin and the industrial distributed systems projects. You would think there's like, Great knowledge to be shared between these groups. Why do you well, think that is? Well, so Bitcoin is different. So there's distributed 
with shared state and there's distributed without shared state. I think that Bitcoin being shared state distributed is a different animal than Kubernetes in that sense. So yes, they're both distributed, but having a common state in a distributed system just causes you to make a lot of different design decisions. And then the other thing about Bitcoin, of course, is that like the security requirement is much higher and the ability to survive kind of active attacks is much higher. So I think, yes, they have distributed in common, but like they have a lot of things that are different as well is probably why they don't have whatever a common code base or something like that. But it's a spectrum, right? I mean, you have layer two stuff and then like until the state propagates to the entire network, it's essentially non-shared state. So you'd imagine like the paradigm. But from a transactional standpoint, right? Like there's one single source of truth that never diverges. And that's kind of like the big feature, ARA, very big feature of the platform. And so to achieve that, you know, particularly with distributed control, where there's no central entity who kind of dictates what's going on, you know, like it's a design requirement that Bitcoin has, that and Ethereum has, that like Kubernetes just doesn't. I still find it surprising. Like you walk around a Kubernetes conference and you ask somebody about Bitcoin, they still think it's a joke. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, everybody thinks everything they don't understand is a joke. Like that's the beauty of technology. That's why you can keep making money <laughs> investing it. I mean, like it's, uh, I mean, you remember in all the smart people thought Facebook was a joke in, you know, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2011, 2016. And, you know, now not only is it not a joke, but it must be stopped by the U.S. government. So I just think people underestimate things that they don't understand. I mean, like what I always say to people who go, oh, Bitcoin's a joke. I'm like, well, like, go ahead and why don't you write a piece of software, put it out there, don't touch it, let it run. And then like, see how much like value will it collect <laughs> over a 10 year period. And can you collect like over a hundred billion dollars worth of value and like hold it? And like, it's just such an impossible thing that Bitcoin pulled off. Like, how can that be a joke? Like that's some serious magic right there, bro. Toussaint led from the front and was wounded 17 times. Genghis Khan was surrounded by his army, which protected him. Mm -hmm. Contrast those two tactics. Well, I think that although they, they were very similar in some ways in that, you know, the Genghis Khan, they were trying to achieve different things. I mean, think the, the kind of thing that Genghis Khan did was kind of each unit in the army was interchangeable. They were all cavalry. They, you know, were able to ride in a circle. And then from a communication standpoint, having the leader in the middle made sense. I think, you know, when... Toussaint led the charge, it was a cultural statement. It was very similar to Alexander the Great. It was like, look, this is how important this is, this fight for liberty. Like, I'm out in front. And I think with Genghis Khan, <laughs> the things motivating his army were, you know, like they, they were like rolling through, they were pillaging, they were getting rich. They were like, there was a kind of a different, I would say the incentives were different. Like Genghis Khan's incentive was to like, you know, win and get rich and build a stronger and stronger army and like a bigger and bigger kind of, kind of empire. Toussaint was 
you know, a revolutionary who was fighting for liberty and like very importantly outlawed pillaging among his soldiers. And when he outlawed it, he said, look, you can't pillage because like, remember, we're fighting for liberty. And like, you can't take somebody's liberty and be fighting for liberty. Like that's a, that's a cultural problem. You know, in his case actually led to him getting this amazing support because he was the only army not pillaging. The European armies were all pillaging and raping and doing all this stuff. And it was so powerful that the white women in Haiti in the colony like supported him over like the Europeans. And they even like referred to him as father. So that's how they felt about him. And like to get that kind of change, like what an amazing like cultural statement he made, but that's what he was going for as the revolutionary, as opposed for the conquering army, which is, you know, what Genghis Khan was. Is there a lesson about mergers and acquisitions to learn from the Mongol Empire? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that mergers and acquisitions and inclusion in general, I mean, I think that what Genghis Khan did, you know, just amazingly well was he could see, you know, even though he was a Mongol, he could see in the Chinese or the Europeans the talent that he didn't have and that he needed, which I yeah, I think companies have a hard time doing that today, right? Like if you're not whatever, if I'm Chinese, I need Chinese employees. If I'm white, I need white employees. If I'm a woman, I need women. Like everybody's trying to hire to themselves. He could see talent he didn't have, like he personally didn't have. But then he went the step beyond that, which is he made sure that once he brought that talent in, they were first-class citizens to the point where like if there were orphan kids in the guys he was incorporating, he would adopt them into his own family just to let everybody know these, not only are they like part of us, they're like part of the Khan, the great Khan. So Khan, K-H-A-N, not C-O-N, by the way, Genghis Khan, as in Genghis Khan. So yeah, like he, he was amazingly uh, forward thinking on that. It's clear that you long for a world with improved race relations. And today, there seems to be a debate about the ideal relationship between races. Can you give me some advice on how to navigate relationships with other races? Well, look, I mean, I think that people get, I think the worst way to do it is assume everybody is racist. Not that everybody isn't racist, you know, like people have like their racial biases and so forth. But uh, like, I think, uh, if you understand people who are not like you, then there's huge benefit in that, uh, which I say. And, you know, benefit not only in a kind of personal context, but in a business context. Um, but you really actually have to understand. You can't just say, oh, well, like I want the gold sticker from the New York Times for hiring women or hiring Hispanics or whatever. And so I'm going to hire them. You like, and I still don't understand them. <laughs> like, I only understand me then that's not good for them and it's not good for you. And I think that's what most people do right now. And the right way to approach it is to understand, okay, how are we the same, but how are we different? And then like, do I really get that difference and do I value it? And do I understand the things that that person can do that I can't do? And that's, I think, how you get to a very, very powerful kind of solution in like in life and business. But if you do the other thing, right? Like if you're just literally applying racism in reverse or sexism in reverse by like making gender and race your criteria, you're going to get that, you know, like, and people are not going to be able to unsee that that was what it was when they came in. Thank you, Ben. All right. Thank you. Thank you.